morning, Jesus, our only true courage. In the first eight verses of this psalm, we see that David is speaking about deliverance from the enemy. And in this case, it would be really difficult to kind of talk about the, the dual nature of the idea of the enemy, the enemy without and the enemy within. In this case, it's predominantly the enemy without. There is a great struggle that is coming upon David. There are those who are trying to trap him, those who are trying to trick him, those who are trying to come against him, those who are trying to afflict him with troubles, those who are bringing their hands of war against him. And so there's a few things that we want to see, a couple of key things from this first section. The first thing that we want to take note of is David's declaration about who God is. God is his rock and his fortress. There's also the language here of refuge, stronghold, and a number of other kinds of things. But this language of rock and a fortress, particularly in a war motif, he's talking about the enemy coming against him. They're setting traps for me. They're afflicting me. They're, 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 they're bringing great difficulties against me. I need you to deliver me. And why is it that I believe that you can deliver me? Because you are my rock. You are my fortress. You are my refuge. You are my stronghold. All of these are either directly or by way of metaphor references to places of defense and deliverance in the midst of a great military battle. Now, I've never been to war, never served in the armed forces. I've had heard lots of stories. I've had family members and friends who have done so. But... I did have substantial conflicts with a guy named Jason Dancy. That's my older brother. (laughs) And some of you have seen on social media, because I've told stories about how rough my brother was with me and our coming up. And I don't want to embarrass him, but he's going to help frame this for me. Okay, so Andrew, I want you to stand up just for a second. I want you to notice how very lean my oldest son is. Now make him the height I am instead of 6'1". That was me. All right, sit down. Now envision, envision someone who's as tall as my son is, close to it anyway, who weighs about 300 pounds. And is about this big across. That was my brother. And boy, did he like to put his hands on me. And I found that the safest place for me was when he was outside and I was inside. My house with a locked door became a rock, a fortress, a stronghold because I was delivered from a great enemy. That's just how it worked. Now, of course, unlike David, who's crying out to the Lord, I was taunting the enemy back then. And it never went well once the door got unlocked. But I do understand the idea of being able to get into a place where there's a great deal of defense to keep the enemy from putting their hands on you. And this is what David is celebrating here. God, the enemy has come against me. They're going to overpower me. They're going to overthrow me. They're, they're, they're going to destroy me. You are my stronghold. You are my rock. You are my refuge. You are my fortress. I come into you and the enemy can't touch me. 
Now, I, I think all of us at some point in our lives have experienced something where we understand what David's talking about. We understand where David's coming from. If I get out here in the middle of all of this, I'm not going to be safe. But if I step back behind this wall, I step back behind this barricade, I step back behind whatever it is, I'm going to be safe. I'm going to be okay. And David is expressing that the greatest defense that he has is the defense of the Lord God himself. Friends, I think that we often forget that as Christians. We spend so much time and so much effort attempting in some way in the culture that we live in to defend our God rather than just resting in him and letting him defend us. David made no defense for his God. Why would I defend the most high king? No, let the most high king defend me. And notice what he says here. And I want to point out this one one key thing. Not only is God his rock, not only is his fortress, refuge, stronghold, all of these things. But in verse four, it says, you will pull me out of the net, which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Friends, the enemy, spiritual enemy, physical enemy. Is indeed trying to trap you. If we want to expand this out to the ultimate enemy, he's like a roaring lion. Seeking whom he may devour. He disguises himself as an angel of light to deceive. Notice what David didn't say. You kept me from getting caught in the net. That's not what he says. What does he say? You will do what? Pull me out of the net. You know what that means, don't you? That he got caught in it. You don't get pulled out of nets that you're not caught in. There was a trap laid for me. I didn't see the trap that was laid for me. I stepped into the trap that was laid for me. I'm now entangled in the trap that was laid for me. I can't get myself out of the trap. You, God, who are my strength, will pull me out of this net. Friends, there's going to be times in your life, your spiritual life, where you find yourself wrapped up and entangled in all manner of things. And you'll look around and go, how did I get here? (laughs) What's going on? How did this happen? I I feel as if I was walking well with the Lord, walking rightly with the Lord, pursuing the face of God, loving him with my heart, soul, mind and strength, loving my neighbor as myself. And now I find myself just overwhelmed by all manner of circumstances and situations and problems. And I don't even know how to begin to deal with what I'm facing right now. That's the secret net of the enemy. And even King David at this time, who's walking rightly with the Lord, found himself trapped in it. Friends, you don't always get entangled in the ways of the enemy just because you volitionally chose to sin. The enemy isn't just waiting for you to fail. He's also actively seeking to destroy you. 
And there are times where you're rightly walking with the Lord and the enemy still comes to overwhelm you. That's what David's talking about right here. Say, God, I don't know how I got in. I don't I don't know how I don't know how any of this has happened. But you know what, God, I know you'll pull me out of this. I know that you'll be my strength. I know that you'll be my deliverer. I know that you will care for me. And then I want you to notice and I want you to see the language here that's used. In verse five, right after that. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. Does that sound vaguely familiar to anyone? This is one of the declarations that Jesus made on the cross. Was Jesus ever sinning? It's an easy pop quiz. Everybody should get an A on this one. Was Jesus ever sinning? No. Was Jesus ever walking away from the will of God? No. Was it God's ultimate master plan for him to die on the cross? Yes. But in the midst of that, Jesus himself prayed, Father, if this cup can pass from me, not my will, but your will be done. But essentially, is there an, and it's humanist, is there another way? There's not another way. This is the way I will pursue it. I will rest in it. I will trust your will. But friends, he still received the flogging. He still received the crown of thorns. He still received those spitting on him and the mockery. He still received the nails through his wrist and through his feet. He still received the suffering and the sorrow and the pain. He still received the, the darkness of the wrath of God on him rather than on the sinners that he was sacrificing himself for. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Feeling the severity of the pain of bearing sin that was not his own. And this is one of the Psalms that he references to on the cross when he cries out just before he dies into your hands. I commit my spirit. Why? I've been trapped in this net, but you will deliver me from it. And then if you just read the rest of this up until about verse 10 or 12 or so. Hating those who regard vain idols, rejoicing in God's loving kindness. His soul has experienced trouble. He's been, but you haven't truly given me over to the hands of my enemy. You've been gracious to me, even though I was in distress. My eye was wasting away. My soul and body were wasting away. My life was spent with sorrow because of my iniquity. And people say, we can't be about Jesus. He never had iniquity. Friends, the purpose of the cross is that he who knew no sin did what? Became sin for us. If Jesus truly is fulfilling the picture of the scapegoat, the sins of all of his people were placed on him and he became the atoning sacrifice, receiving the wrath of God. As our sin substitute, he took our sin and made it his own, even though he had never done anything wrong. That's the definition of substitutionary atonement. My body, my eye, my soul is wasting away over this iniquity. Whose iniquity? My iniquity, not mine anymore. He took it. It's not my sin anymore. Jesus in the great exchange took my sin on himself and in turn gave me his righteousness. 
And friends, when he screams out from the cross. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Those who are experts in the word would have carried their minds to this psalm. And there's a picture where through this, there's an establishment. Friends, David's hope was in the mercy of God. Jesus' fulfillment was the mercy of God. My hope now, like David, looking back at the cross as he was looking forward to the cross, is in the mercy of God as displayed by the great substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I am forgotten as a dead man. I am like a broken vessel Please tell me you you hear and see the picture of the cross here. I have heard the slander of many. He has saved others, but he can't save himself. I have terror on every side. The Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders, the thieves on the cross, the abandonment of his own disciples. While they took counsel together against me they schemed to take my life away here david in this sections of 9 through 15 begins talking about the distress of sin for david from his perspective it's his own sin from the perspective of the cross it's the reception of sin that the lord jesus christ has taken on what does sin do sin creates distress and grief Sadness and sorrow. Friends, I will tell you that there are times when you will be distressed and have grief and has nothing to do with sin. There are times in life when distress and grief come and sin is not necessarily present. But whenever distress and grief do come, you need to pause long enough to ask, is this because of my sin? Because when sin is present, distress and grief are not far away. And notice this response, what happens when this distress and this grief from sin come. There's sorrow and there's sighing because of iniquity. My life is Spent with sorrow, my years with sighing, my strength has failed because of my iniquity, my body has wasted away. To my adversaries and to my neighbors, I have become a reproach to both friend and enemy. Friends, that's what sin does. Sin causes us to be a bad flavor in the mouths of all those around us. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he was dying on the cross, when he was for his own testimony forsaken by the father, when he was crushed by the weight of the wrath of God, bearing the cup of sin. When darkness fell on the land, when he who is alive forevermore tasted physical death for his people. He was a reproach to both his enemies and his friends. 
other than John and the ladies that were there, his own disciples abandoned him. The Romans scoffed at him. The Jewish leaders scoffed at him. Those that he had healed, those whose lives he had changed, those that he had touched with his miracles, those he had fed on the mountainside, they were now there calling for his death. He had become a reproach, a word of mockery. Why? Because he didn't shape up to be what they all thought he should be. And friends, the the problem that was had in the time of the crucifixion is the problem that we still have today. And it is this, namely, we would rather serve a victorious king in the political realm than receive deliverance from a suffering savior in the spiritual one. We would rather vote in our champion than be brought in by the true champion. Jesus came and he did not fit the bill of the Messiah as they saw him. He was not the conquering king. He did not overthrow those pesky Romans. He did not give them the deliverance that they expected. He gave them the deliverance that they needed, not the one that they wanted. And he became a reproach to them. And at the end of it, when he finally gives up his spirit right after declaring this on the cross, it took one of those pesky pagan Romans to finally understand this was the son of God. And so he makes the declaration. I'm in your hands, my times are in your hands. Look here, if you will, verses 14 and 15. But as for me, even though all of this is happening, as for me, I trust in you, O Lord, and I say you are my God. My times, my seasons, my life, the moments of my life, that's the idea there, are in your hand. Deliver me then from the hand of my enemies and those who persecute me. An awesome play on words here. The fullness of my life, every moment that goes by, is sovereignly in the authoritative hand of God. Therefore, deliver me from the weak, small, feeble, insignificant hands of my enemies. This is the declaration. David is making it. Jesus is affirming it through the cross. And it is a testimony that we can now give because we are in Christ Jesus. And notice how David closes this psalm. He closes it with a declaration of the blessing of God on his people. He closes it with a declaration of what it would look like if we could participate in the life and work of God fully. Which is what happens when we come into Christ. Notice verse 16 as he starts this blessing towards God's people. Make your face to shine upon your servant. Friends, that's the benediction blessing. That's what that is. And all throughout the Old Testament, the picture of being in God's face... And God having his face shine on you 
and being able to be exposed to the face of God, being able to engage in the glorious picture of sharing intimately in the face of God is a picture of blessing. Moses understood it so much that it was the great request he made of God. God, I want to see your face. And of course, we all know God's response. You can't. You can't see my face. And what was what was God's reasoning behind it? You can't see my face. Why not? Because it will kill you. Because I'm far too holy. And you are far too wretched in your sin. But what's the promise of the future for those who are in Christ? What does it say in the revelation of those who've received this great mercy from God? We shall see his face. God himself will remove the tears from our eyes. He will mark our very foreheads with his great name. He will be called our God and we will be called his people. He will cause our faces to shine like the sun. Like Jesus' face on the Mount of Transfiguration. There is a blessing to be bestowed upon the people of God who are embracing the merciful salvation that comes from Him in His covenant reality fulfilled in the great Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will happen when that day comes? It says, make your face to shine upon your servant. Verse 16. How so? Save me in your loving kindness, your merciful love. Don't let me be put to shame, O Lord, because I'm calling upon you. Let the wicked instead be put to shame. Let them be silent in Sheol. And then he runs through the shame of the wicked. Let lying lips be mute. Those who speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. Put those people away. And then notice David's declaration of God's goodness. How great is your goodness. Which you have stored up for those who fear you. Which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. What does God do for them? He hides them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of men. You keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be God. God in his goodness. Friends, hear, hear me this morning. God in his goodness, keeps us safe. That's what he does. Real courage, real courage of conviction, does not have disregard for what may or may not happen. That's madness. That's martyrdom. That's a martyrdom complex. You know, those rousing speeches that people give in the movies, you know, we're all 
all going to die today, but let us die. Yeah, whatever. You're being a knucklehead, dude, okay? The reason you go to battle is to actually try to figure out a way to win. Like, not just everybody can get slaughtered and make a cool movie about it. Like, that's not the point. True, real courage comes from someone giving you the understanding that there really can be victory to be had in the war that you are waging. And when you have God himself saying, I'm bringing you into a place of safety and I am waging this war with you and for you, you can then march out behind him with the utmost confidence that victory will indeed be yours. This is what he's doing right here. And one of the good things that God has done for us is that he has declared to us, my people will be safe In me. For you have made marvelous his loving kindness to me in a besieged city. Mm. Blessed be that God. Worshipped be that God. Who hears us when we cry out. Who, Who acknowledges us when we're suffering. Who recognizes our poverty. And our pain and our sorrow and our struggle. And what does David then call out for people to do? What does David call out for people to do? Love the Lord and take courage. Look at verses 23 and 24. Oh, love the Lord, all you his godly ones. Now, I want to I, I want to pause. There are literally hundreds of times in the scripture where it commands God's people to love him. I want to let you know a secret for biblical interpretation. When the Bible says something over and over and over and over and over again, it's because people constantly don't do that thing. If there's something in the scripture that says you ought to do this, this is how you ought to be. And it says it all the time. It's because we as knuckleheaded people don't do what it says we're supposed to do. In other words, hear me, friend. One of the greatest struggles that God's people have is loving God. I want that to really settle into the soul for a second. Because one of the very first things that almost all of us would affirm is our love for God. Of course I love God. I'm here on a Sunday morning, aren't I? I took time out of my schedule to come to a worship service. I'm pretty nice, you know, in the grocery line at the store. You know, the Christmas South Broadway traffic is about to get started. And I'm going to be real patient and not like yell at people. I mean, sure, I love God. Why would you tell me to love God? Of course I love God. Here's the thing. I had a professor say one time to our class, we had a seminar on the doctrine of sin, what sin is, what it's like, why it's such a problem, why Jesus had to be such a great savior to deliver us from it. And he made the statement, it's haunted me forever because he was very right. He said, every time you as a Christian 
actively sin. You are declaring to the universe, everyone that's in it and God himself, that you, A, do not love God because you loved your sin. And B, that you might not have a real relationship with the God you claim to love because you so actively and willingly abandoned his will for your life. Why does the Bible constantly tell us to love God? Because constantly in our lives we show that we do not love God. And David at the end of this declares to the people, hey, hey. If you want this to really work, if you want all of this to go the way that it should go, if you want God to be all these great things that I've just said that God is and our deliverer and our stronghold and all that, then you know what you need to do? Abandon your sin and love God. That's what he's saying. Hmm. Why? You say, Philip, there's no way that means that. Love God, all you godly ones. Why? Because the Lord preserves the faithful. He's talking about those who are abandoning their sin. Because right after that, he says what happens to those who don't abandon their sin. The, and he fully recompenses, pays back the proud doer, the ultimate sin of them all. Do you want to be strong? Be strong and let your heart take courage. Who? All you who hope, wait for, have faith in the Lord. Friends, Jesus is our only true courage. And not in some sort of macho sort of way. Not in some sort of boastful sort of way. Not in some sort of puff our chest out kind of way. Jesus is our only courage when we recognize, when we recognize that the only hope we have is to humbly fall before the Lord, acknowledging the great depth of our sin and the greater depth of Christ's sacrifice and love and falling into Him by grace through repentance and faith as the refuge for us from our great enemy without and our great enemy within, acknowledging the merciful, loving kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ to take our sins on Himself and to give us His righteousness and to hide us into the unfailing hand of God the Father, sealing us with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, for an inheritance that is not ours, then and only then can we stand up with any level of confidence and courageously face the wickedness of this world because we have yielded to the glory of God and have abandoned the false glory of man. That's it. That's the only way Jesus is our courage. So friend, this morning, I ask myself, I ask you, do you love the Lord? Because that's, that's the command at the end. David, I want all of these things to be true. 
I want all of these things to be true in my life. I want to be delivered. I want to be set free. I want to be in a stronghold. I, I, I want God to be my rock. I want to have the same perspective that God has. I want to be delivered from the grief and the pain and the despair that iniquity brings in life. I, I, this is, I don't want to be counted among those with lying lips. I, I, I want you to save me in your loving kindness. God, how does this happen? Love God. That's it. That's it. That's it. There are two great commandments. The first one is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second one is similar to it. That you would love your neighbor as yourself. This is the summation of all the law, Jesus says. The question is then begged, how do I love God? Broken, ruined, overwhelmed sinner that I am. How do I love God? Friends, it's beautiful and frustrating all at the same time. The answer is given to us in the New Testament. I love God because he first Loved me. I acknowledge. That while I was yet in my sin. Christ died for me. That's how you love God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your challenging, powerful word. Thank you for the picture that it so plainly paints. Father, thank you. That without your love for us in Christ, we would never love you. Father, forgive us that even with your love in Christ, we often abandon our love for you for the things of this world. Father, Cause us to not so easily trade in your glory and your beauty and your splendor and your truth for the trinkets of this broken life. Father, help us to rest in the refuge and stronghold of this psalm, the one who cried out on our behalf that he committed his spirit into your hands, that he took our iniquity into his body and he made a great exchange, our sin for his righteousness and let us be driven to love of you through him. And then and only then let us stand courageously in our faith. And Father, we thank you in advance for the grace that you will supply for this to be true of us. In Jesus' name, amen.